Hello, this is Ari Armstrong. It's March 27th, 2020. It's been an interesting few weeks at the beginning cycle of this coronavirus pandemic of 2020. Today, I spend about a half an hour talking with Brian Alvarez. He's a physician at Colorado Occupational Medical Partners, and he was the public health director of the United States Northern Command from October 2016 through September 2019. So he has extensive experience thinking about and dealing with pandemic outbreaks through his work in the military. And today, I asked him mostly about the prospects and promises of testing here in the United States, since we're behind the curve on that. Another thing I've been doing is collecting a number of links related to COVID-19 from my webpage. It's the COVID-19 resources page. You can find that at ariarmstrong.com. I still have a few dozen articles to read before I get that fully up to speed, but I have been working on that for the last few days. And so now I bring you Brian Alvarez for this special episode of the Self and Society podcast. So we're on the line with Brian Alvarez, and you're a physician. You're with the Colorado Outfit now, and you were in the military, so... Tell us a bit about your history in the military with your medical activities. So my background, uh, my specialty in medicine is preventive medicine, public health. Um, A lot of what I did was uh, I worked a lot with um, like infectious disease outbreaks. Uh, Started off doing originally in the the Navy and Marine Corps units themselves uh, back in 2009, uh, did investigations related to H1N1. swine flu. Um, we did things, uh, you know, there's always tuberculosis concerns or, uh, potential outbreaks that we always investigate foodborne outbreaks. And then, uh, over time I moved over to the Marine command in Camp Lejeune, uh, was, uh, the, the top public health advisor and the, the deputy medical chief medical advisor for the commanding general of the second Marine expeditionary force out there. So about 50,000 Marines based on the East Coast that deploy globally. And we look at, you know, what are the threats overseas medically? How do you plan ahead for it? And then I spent two years as a director of public health for uh, Naval Hospital at uh, Naval Medical Center at Lejeune in North Carolina, as well as the, the base and some of the surrounding bases. And that's where I dealt with the Ebola and Zika uh, outbreaks out there. And then um, the last three years before I left active duty in the fall, I was at U.S. Northern Command uh, down in Colorado Springs. Northern Does that Command. involve all the military, all the military branches? That's, yeah, so the Northern Command is one of the, um, not, well, I guess, 10 uh, major combatant commands in the military. Uh, so it, Northern Command has responsibility for the U.S., continental U.S., Canada, Alaska, Bahamas, Bermuda, Mexico. Um, and we do a variety of things. We were the ones that help coordinate the actual, any military operations that have to happen. And a, and a good chunk of those functions are actually disaster, uh, disaster relief. So like the uh, Hurricane Maria um, that hit Puerto Rico, that was part of our thing. We planned a lot of the military side of that response for it. Um, when we look at a medical aspect of it, we look at, you know, how do you augment medical care from the local communities? What, what stuff do they need? What resources? Um, and then we do a lot of long-term planning. So, uh, you know, things like up in the Arctic, how do you support uh, troops that have to do the missile, you know, response stations up in the middle of the Arctic, you know, zone? Uh, and then some of the stuff we did was pandemic, actually. We, we were part of the pandemic planning, working with CDC and HHS, um, FEMA, Homeland Security on that. So they, uh, 
you know, we, we we're very familiar as to what the federal military does um, because that, that was our, under our response. Uh, that. So we'll all just agree that, you know, your stuff when it comes to pandemic preparedness <laughs> for pan- pand- pandemic response. So Not as much as there's many more smart, much, much smarter people out there. Than me. <laughs> so. um, well, there's, yeah, thankfully we're hearing voices from a lot of smart people who, Yes. Who know a lot about this. However, as smart as you are, you're in a way, people are only as smart as the data to which they have access. And that brings me to the main topic that I wanted to discuss with you, which was the matter of testing. Mm-hmm. Because it seems like a lot of these estimates concerning how contagious this disease is, what it's what the death rates are, is contingent on a lot of guesswork, which we just don't know because, well. I mean, one way that we could theoretically know that is by widespread testing, which just isn't available at this point. Correct. But given the fact that that we are behind the curve now, that we are already on lockdown in Colorado and many other places around the region, what what I wish could happen is that we could ramp up testing such that it become so widespread that we could slowly get a handle on things. Doctors could start to actually see where it's spreading more. You could actually start to pinpoint people who are actually sick and quarantine them or isolate them so that people who are already either have antibodies or haven't been exposed could go back to something resembling normal life. And so that's, that's kind of the topic that I wanted to, to yeah. do with you. That, that what you're describing is actually what happened with um, uh, South Korea and Germany. Uh, they, they had that, that immediate capability to do early intervention and screening, so they could find out right off the what, right off the bat who was exposed to stuff. Do con- uh, what we call contact tracing. So everybody that's a positive, you're able to trace their steps back over a week to two weeks, and then try to find. Again, you're not going to capture 100, percent but you can capture majority of the contacts that somebody's been around, and and uh, basically quash this. Um, the spread as quickly as possible. That that's crucial, um, and unfortunately, we missed that window of opportunity, um, which is it's hard to make up after that point. To be honest, uh, it's a hard thing to 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 go from here. So, to my mind, though, ramped up testing has got to be part of the solution if we have any hope of getting out of this. Short of everybody gets it and we just kind of lump the losses, maybe spread it out over time to keep them somewhat lower, but is there any realistic chance that we can ramp up testing at this point sufficiently to get a handle on it? Um, unfortunately, it takes time. Uh, you have to understand the testing stuff, whether whether you it's run by the public or private sector, it takes time to, it's not just the actual test, the actual test itself of what you're looking for, but you know, you have swap sets, you have test tubes, you have the um, material that has to actually contain it so you don't ruin the sample so it's good enough to be tested. But to be honest, to be honest the other thing that, that I think we're starting to see now, which explains why people are waiting five to seven days to get their test results back, are um, it's the labs out there in the community that can do the testing and have that capability. Um, they don't have the mass capability to do the testing. So they're getting basically overwhelmed and swamped and they have to prioritize. And, and that's unfortunately what we're left with um, at this point. And, and that's the catch up game. And I think that's, you know, your, your idea of mass testing and ramping it up 
I think everybody wants to go in that direction, but I think it's tough to do now since we're already behind. And I think that's what we're trying to figure out um, at the community level, how to do that. Well, maybe you can explain, I have a little bit of knowledge about this, but maybe you can explain the differences between the active viral swab testing and the blood antibody testing and the differences in how those are collected and run and the differences of what they convey in terms of the information. Yeah, so the active swab testing is usually what they do with like a, a nasal, a, a nose and throat swab test. And, and that's really just looking for remnants of that virus itself in there, um, you know, an active infection going on. When we start doing antibody tests, that's where it gets a little, and the blood test, that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. And, and I think that's where they need a little bit more data to figure out, you know, how quickly are we seeing, because it's not just a matter of uh, antibody it's different subtypes of antibodies. And, and when, you, when we look at it, we do this, for example, for hepatitis, right? Um, hepatitis B, which is a common one that we screen healthcare workers for. And you know, there's you know, six or seven subtypes of hepatitis B antibodies. And then you also look at surface antigens and you can, you can measure that in somebody's blood and determine, is this an active infection going on acutely? Is this a resolved infection? Or is this something that somebody has now developed an immunity to, they're no longer infected? And so that's the thing with, with this particular COVID. Again, coronavirus is something that's been around, that, that group of viruses known as corona has been around for years. We've known about it. But this COVID-19, the strain is something that I think we're just trying to figure out how to, you know, what are the, the antibody surface markers that we're looking for and then more importantly now, how do you equip laboratories around the country uh, to basically be able to, to detect those? Um, and that's, so that's, that's the logistical challenge behind it. So let's just say, because there's also coronavirus-based colds, right? A different sort of virus. So yeah. would, would these antibody tests, could they tell the difference between whether I've had a coronavirus-related cold recently versus COVID-19? Is, can we get that level of detail with some of these tests? On the test, they should be able to get to that level of detail. That, that's something that they're looking at. I think the issue isn't necessarily is this a coronavirus cold versus COVID-19. The issue is on the when I do the blood test, which we in the medical world call a serum test, um, you know, am I looking at somebody that has an active infection or an immunity? And I think that's what they're starting to look at, the different things. Um, and I think that's probably that's where the lab capabilities have to come into play, and are the labs equipped? And then more importantly, are they equipped to do mass testing mm-hmm. at once? And I, I think that's where the problem is. Well, I don't know if you. I've been reading a bit about the effort in San Miguel County mm-hmm. because there's a couple there who works for a biomedical company, and they are paying for everyone in the county to get the blood test twice. So it's it's actually going on now, like today yesterday mm-hmm. and then a couple more days to try to get everybody. It's a relatively small county, like seven, 8,000. And so their plan is to do everybody once. And then I believe the plan is to wait two weeks and then do everybody again. So me being a layperson thinking about this, I'm hopeful that this can actually yield some data about how widespread this is and how many people who are getting it are actually getting really sick. So do you share that kind of optimism or have you heard, I don't know if you've heard about this particular study, but what do you, what do you think about efforts like that? So I haven't heard about the San Miguel County study. 
Um, I have heard uh, about similar stuff going around other parts of the country uh, in, in the, the medical networks that I'm connected to. They're looking at that in, in particular, what you're talking about tests now, test two weeks from now and kind of see what they're, because it's not just a, a, about an antibody marker. It's about the level in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's hopeful, but again, you know, our conversation leading into this was that, you know, we're looking at ways of helping alleviate the strain of, of shutting down an entire society. And unfortunately, I think we're at that point where, while I think those kind of projects are going to be incredibly helpful so that we don't have to shut down and lock ourselves in for the next six months. Um, I don't think that's going to help us in the next 14 to 30 days. Um, and I, I think that's the challenge and that's, that's part of the problem that we're dealing with um, so, on this. Well, maybe you have a better sense than I do. So it would be it, theoretically it'd make, it'd be a big difference whether 10% of the population has already been exposed or 90%. I mean, mm-hmm. if 90% has already been exposed, we've kind of exposed ourselves out of the problem, which right. but I don't think that's the case, right? That's, that's the fear is that only, it's closer to 10 than to 90. And so it seems like one thing, even, even like some randomized tests might reveal um, the spread of it. So what do you think about that? And what do you think is the, are the best estimates as to the actual spread now that we, that you think we have, which would reveal, you know, how much damage do we have yet to go potentially? I, I think that's the problem. I, I, I really cannot in good faith give you an estimate of, of what I think the spread is because um, there's so many factors that go into play for it. Um, I, I think the, you know, part of the rationale of shutting everything down is because we don't know what those numbers are and we're trying to slow it down. Uh, and again, it goes, it's not so much the asymptomatic people or the people that are just getting sick, um, you know, just, okay, yeah, I have Corona, I have COVID-19, I'm knocked down for a few days. That's not really the concern. The concern is the hospital capacity to handle patients. And so the, the scary part about this virus that I think people, what is the great unknown is every virus, even different strains of a common virus has a tendency to shift in its ver- what we call virulence, which is the severity of that. Um, and we saw this in 1918 with the, the flu epidemic of that year, where, you know, a lot of people were just knocked down for about a week or two weeks, and then they were able to get back to regular life. But there were some virulent strains that actually hit, especially on that second peak of the wave for 1918, that um, it, it literally killed young, healthy people that should have been able to bounce back and survive. Mm. And that's what we're, you know, I, I think in order to help people in those that, that are hit by the virulent strains, you need to have full-blown hospital capacities. That means ICU beds, ventilators, everything. Um, and right now, our hospital system, not just in the U.S., but in the developed world, is not designed to handle mass groups of people that require critical care. It's just, it's not. Even socialized medicine in Britain, free market systems here in the U.S., it doesn't make a difference what that is. It's in today's world, you know, we can do a lot to save people and help people out, but not in the mass numbers that, for example, Italy sees. Italy, that that scared a lot of people in this country into realizing what do we do? And because we don't have the data, like you said, and all that information on serum testing and, and uh, swab testing, we don't have that really in. So we don't know how that can help us manage people. Um, 
we're, we're kind of stuck where we are right now, unfortunately. Well, a bit ago, Colorado's Governor Jared Polis indicated that we have about 900 ventilators in the state. And he thinks we'll need maybe 7,000-ish ventilators. So that gives you some sense of the potential magnitude of the problem. Yes. And the, the national, the strategic stockpiles that we keep around the country um, that uh, HHS has different agencies under it, Health and Human Services Federal, they have different agencies that actually manage the stockpiles. Ventilators are just one part of it. The other part of it, too, don't forget, is your PPEs. So gowns, gloves mask, and then the N95 respirator, um, you know, for a healthcare worker, you, you know, to be effective, you, you have to go through those, those respirators are only good for about eight hours or every five symptomatic or positive patients. So, you know, it's, I, I think th there's a lot of stuff logistically that, um, you know, the, the, our system was designed to handle a national or a major disaster healthcare wise or natural in one part of the country, or maybe two or three separate parts at once, but we weren't designed to handle all major Metro areas being inundated with sick people all at once. And then I think right now the shutdowns, um, you know, I, I think this governor did, I think governor Paulus did the right thing by, by doing what he's doing. I don't know how you estimate that number. That's the one thing that we struggled with a lot of times is estimating over the years, how many ventilators do you really need? And so the only way to kind of prevent from having to go to 7,000 ventilators is the, the only tool we have is the social distancing. And um, I think that's, um, again, back to what I started from, that's kind of where we're stuck with, so. Are you hopeful that companies that aren't in the ventilator business, like Elon Musk has talked about this, can actually get into that business quickly or is there, does it, is it more complicated than it would seem to a layperson such that you think that might be more difficult than people hope? It's, it's, it's not impossible by any means. I think uh, I was actually very happy to hear Elon Musk do that. Cause I think that's, that's the kind of, that, that's the kind of movement we need in our private sector to help with a, a situation like this. Um, the issue that I saw mostly with that though, is that it's not as quick as people are going to need. It, it's it's going to be quicker than, you know, most people say, hey, this takes months. He may be able to ramp up production to do it in a regular, in a, in a much faster timeline. But I don't think it's something where, you know, Elon Musk can deliver 3,000 ventilators here to Colorado in the next three weeks. I don't think that's going to happen. Now, if I'm proven wrong, then, hey, I'm proven wrong and I'm happy about that. <laughs> but I, I think that's, that's the challenge. You know, the, the big auto companies, um, the federal government was able to, well, they're still negotiating what a price tag is on that. Um, and I think that's one of the things you have to understand is that when these big auto companies like Ford and GM revamp their factories to produce ventilators, um, that costs them a lot of money. And it's money that they have to be able to, you know, we could argue how much. Um, I think right now we need to be less concerned about how much that costs and to see if we can get those companies to start ramping it up so we can get those ventilators in place. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that'd be nice. I don't want to get it, but if I get it, I want to be able to be on a vent if I need it. I, you and me both. I mean, that's, that's one of the things, you know, my girlfriend and I were, um, you know, I, right now I, I see patients, uh, we, we see um, work-related injuries and we're staying open because the more patients that we can see and keep out of the emergency rooms, the less crowded the emergency rooms are. And then also 
the less chance of those workers getting exposed to COVID-19. I mean, these are firefighters, police officers, healthcare workers, Amazon workers. I mean, this is who are, are keeping our society going in all this. Um, and, uh, you know, I have no face mask. You know, I can wear gloves maybe, but I have no face mask. And my mom is freaking out right now. And yeah, I understand that. But I mean, it's, it is what it is. It's, it's kind of what we're left with. Um, I'd rather people in the hospitals and the ICUs and the ERs, they're the ones that need that protective equipment because they're at higher risk. And until we figure this out, I mean, making those respirators is going to be very tough to do in a very short time frame. So, How hopeful are you that antivirals, effective antivirals will come online and then an effective vaccine? And what do you see is the best guess for a, a realistic time frame on those things? So for antiviral medications, um, and we saw this with past things like H1N1, um, you know, they, the, the issue is not how quickly they can come on, but how uh, fast the virus develops a resistance to it. That's the problem with antivirals. So if they do come online, it needs to be managed very closely by, um, by healthcare staff. Uh, because we saw with H1N1, uh, one of the big antivirals that we used was quickly that, that virus developed immunity. And, and that's what viruses do. That's how they've survived for billions of years. Um, for vaccines, you know, I'm thinking back about H1N1. It first broke out around March, April of 20, 2009. Um, and they, they got, for the military, we got the first dose out for high priority military at the end of September of 2009. So within that six month time frame. But the, 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 the big thing on that one you have to kind of keep in mind is, is that H1N1, that is a little bit of a different beast because that's part of the influenza family of viruses. And influenza is something that we've managed to, to develop a vaccine for. However, the vaccines change and they have to evolve with the virus itself. So for coronavirus, I mean, I really have to defer to people like uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, who, who says this is, you know, maybe by the fall we'll have one on. Um, the, op- the reason why I'm optimistic about, uh, or I'm not, pes- I'm not, you know, doomsday scenario about it is by the time the vaccine comes around, this COVID-19, a lot of us will have already been exposed to it in various forms and developed some kind of an immunity to it. So by the time we get the vaccine, that should help us because COVID, all viruses, when they go through, they go through multiple peaks. And so this one eventually is, is going to, you know, each time it goes through a peak, it, it changes in its virulence. And so I think between developing an immunity to it and then the vaccine bolstering our immunity, um, that, that's where we're hopeful that COVID-19 won't be the threat right now that we, we're currently concerned about. Okay. Do you have any, uh, what else should I ask you right now? Oh, no, this is, uh, sorry, this is one of my down days. I would have dressed up for you a little more. Um, oh, <laughs> uh, you know, We're I, all on kind of a weird, in, weird, in a weird zone right now. Being yeah, home, kids I, home and everything else. I think it's, it's like, you know, I, I have two parents that are 80 and 82. Um, you know, I, my dad's grandmother died in the flu epidemic, I'm an epidemic of 1918. And, you know, when this first came out, I told my dad, I said, you know, we've already had one person in our family die that we know of, of that great flu. I don't want, you know, another member. And so, you know, it goes back to basic things that are in our control. 
Um, it's stuff that like our moms taught us when we were kids about, you know, coughing and sneezing, you know, into your armpit, that area, washing your hands frequently, not touching your face, which is something I have a hard time doing. Um, you know, those are the things that we have to constantly be thinking about. I know as a physician and seeing patients on a regular basis, you know, it's really stopped and made me think about how many times a day am I actually wiping off my stethoscope? You know, how many times a day am I, we talk about washing hands, which is what I do, but, you know, little things about stuff like that. Um, and I think those are in our control. I think it comes down to um, what I'm seeing now in our society is, uh, you know, looking out for the people uh, that actually need help, uh, that, that need it. You know, we talk about elderly, but there's a lot of people walking around with suppressed immune systems. I'm active in the cystic fibrosis group out here in Colorado. And um, cystic fibrosis is a disease that used to kill people when I was growing up. I'm 43. And so now when I look around, I see people that are in their 30s and 40s with CF that uh, are, you know, holding they're, they're part of our normal everyday life uh, and what they do, but they have weak immune systems. There's a lot of other people out there that are like that, cancer patients, things like that. So, you know, I think one of the things that we really need to think about is, you know, this particular crisis is being driven by our, our the lack of the capacity of the healthcare system to handle massively sick people all at once. And I think we need to be a little more cognizant of why we do stuff every every year for flu we get the shots not for ourselves but we do it because of all the other people out there that don't have strong immune systems and i i think it's that awareness of us trying to figure out i think the other big takeaway on this one is emergency preparedness um you know i think that's something that we're seeing right now that we really have not developed a good capacity nationally and locally and you know regionally I think that we need to rethink on how we do stuff. Um, I know my colleagues right now in the military that are working on this particular outbreak, there's a lot of lessons learned, um, and I have no doubt that they're going to, after this is done, uh, fix it. Uh, but I think there's a lot of issues that, um, you know, people have talked about for years that was theoretical um, that now comes to play. And I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, a colleague and I, I hate to do that little, you know, I told you so, but it's for years, we would sit through these exercises that were simulations on pandemics and say, you know, this is where the problems are going to be. We know social media, the media themselves, or the messaging has to be handled in a, in a better way. Um, and sadly, I'm actually seeing that kind of play out where, you know, I went to the store right now and I couldn't even find any paper towels. It's like, really? Come on, guys. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think this will rethink on how we do stuff. I am very confident locally here, um, and I don't want to be—I don't want to jinx or be too overconfident. But I am very proud of um, some of the people I know that are involved here in Colorado and the response. And I think that they are um, very wise in doing it. I know this has hurt a lot of people economically, um, but I think the, the big takeaway from this is we need to be better prepared in the future for these kind of things, so that we don't destroy family businesses and. You know, people are out of work, having a hard time paying bills. Um, and that's not right. Uh, we need to figure out a better way to balance all of this together. Okay, well, stay safe out there. And thanks a lot for talking to us and sharing your thoughts today. You too, Ari. Thank you for having me.